All right, friends, this is it. This is the last broadcast of 2023. Now, um, I don't know why that's particularly significant, except for it's the end of the year, we're starting a new year. But uh, one thing that I've noticed, (laughs) the older you get, the faster time seems to move. I mean, that's uh, the phenomenology of time. To God, time doesn't move at all so much. I mean, I, I think God is a temporal but uh, since he's God and been around forever and ever, to him a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. It's like time's not—it feels different to him. But for us, when we're young, it goes slower. When you get older, it's like the days drag on and the years fly by. So we're at the end of another year, and uh, I trust that your year has been satisfying— for you personally, and partly satisfying because you have invested much of your time in things that really matter. And by the way, and I hadn't planned to put this in right at this point, but it's a good segue in just reminding you that this is the end of the year for us financially as well, which means within the next few days is the last days that you can make a difference for us at STR in 2023. And you know that we work every day to equip you and others to engage the culture with the truth of Christ and the Christian view of the world, which entails ethical elements as well, so that you can stand for truth broadly writ, so that God would be glorified through you. That's our goal in you. And in order to do that, of course, we need your help. And if you haven't given yet this year to stand a reason, you still have a couple more days, you can do that. You can write us a check. Uh, you can go to um, donate.str.org slash donate. I don't know why we have it in there twice, but I think it's on our website, str.org slash donate. That will probably get you there. Um, and then you can help push us over our goals so we end in the black this year so we can start next year strong. All right? So just counting on you to help us out. We are always going to be here for you, God willing. And we'll keep working to do our best job to make you a better ambassador for Christ. So this is the last, um, the last uh, show of the year, and um, it's actually a little bit of a special show because you're going to hear something from the distant past in my life. The bulk of this show will be a teaching, since I'm not actually in studio this week between Christmas and New Year's. I give the entire staff that week off, okay? unrelated to their vacation, just because I think that's a good thing. (laughs) Uh, But that means I'm not in studio either, and uh, so we're going to give you a section of teaching that we're drawing from the past on, the far distant past. For me, so distant, it was before Stand to Reason even started, okay? But let me kind of provide a, 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 a... predicate, so to speak, to what I want to do with this teaching on the life of Jesus of Nazareth. Um, I have a massive frustration that's actually coming from a good place, but still the end result is something very frustrating. The good place is most people think highly of Jesus. They think he's pretty cool. They think he's a good guy. Indeed, they want to get Jesus on their team, rooting for the same things they're rooting for. So their ideas, I think, not so much that they want to be on Jesus' team, they want Jesus on their team, okay? And so this is why you hear things like, um, uh, Jesus never said anything about homosexuality, for example. Well, why should that matter 
to a non-believer. The reason it matters is because they respect Jesus. And if they can get Jesus on their side, um, appearing to be an advocate for their view, like homosexuality, all the better for them. Now, of course, that point doesn't go through well, because it doesn't matter what he didn't weigh in on. He didn't weigh in on slavery either. (laughs) It didn't mean that he's pro-slavery. So this point goes nowhere, but it does indicate the respect people have for Jesus. The problem that really frustrates me, and this is the downside of it, is people have respect for Jesus, they want Jesus on their side, but they have no idea of what Jesus taught or represented. This is why, um, was it two years ago I wrote this piece, Solid Ground, that went out to everybody called The um, Legend of the social justice Jesus. There were too many people that were trying to get Jesus on the social justice bandwagon, and many of them were Christians. That is, that they were pastors or believers that are have a, are fine in most ways, but even though they know the main purpose of Jesus was salvation, they'll still throw this in. We also know that he campaigned for the, for the down-and-out you know, the disenfranchised, the outcast, the poor. So they'll throw that in because they think that's part of his enterprise, when it was not part of his enterprise at all. This I chronicle in the piece that I just mentioned, the legend of the social justice Jesus. It turns out when you read through all the Gospels, every word, which is what I did to prepare that piece, that Jesus never championed the cause of the disenfranchised as such, or the outcast as such or the financially poor as such. He came for the poor in spirit. And this is what I um, verify by going back to the text. So the frustration is when people have a high view of Jesus, but then what they do is they try to shoehorn their own theology or social ideals into Jesus' life as if he was an advocate for their view. And whenever you look at Jesus' teaching in isolation, it always leads to error. You pick and choose the things that you like, and you're going to get a profile not of the Jesus of history recorded in the canonical Gospels, but you're going to get a Jesus who looks like you, politically. And this is why it's so important for us to be educated in the life of Christ, because if we're not educated particularly in the Gospels, where we get the content about the life of Christ, then there is no Jesus for us to have an opinion about. And so many years ago, when I was still at Hope Chapel, I put together this course called The Life of Christ, 10 sessions on the life of Christ. Now, we also have a product from that time called The Bible Fast Forward, and I think that's eight sessions to cover the Scripture leading up to the time of Christ, so you can get the big picture. Um, what this other course does, titled The Life of Christ, 10, se- ten Sessions Available uh, at str.org, is to give you the rest of the story, is to show you how, in the life of the person of Jesus, that he didn't just drop out of the sky, but he came in an- anticipation. He arrived at a moment of anticipation that had been set up for thousands of years beforehand, prophets that have offered 
words and covenants that pointed to this person of Jesus. And so he is kind of arriving in the midst of an historical, theological, political, and geographical context that adds depth and meaning and substance to what he has to say. And if you don't have that, you're going to misunderstand what he's all about. That's kind of my point and my frustration. People don't have that. So I put together this Life of Christ that's available on, what, DVD or however we do things on the internet now, uh, MP3s or whatever, uh, so that you can get a foundation of that. If you listen to the Bible Fast Forward, you get a foundation of how God, through the prophets and through the covenants, worked from the beginning to bring us to the point of the advent of Messiah. This course, The Life of Christ, is the one that takes us from there and shows you the fulfillment and how all the things that are said by the prominent characters in the early parts, the, the, uh, the, the birth narratives, which this next piece is going to cover. Um, people like, like um, the angels, not people like the angels, but angels, and people like Zechariah and Mary and Elizabeth and Simeon, they are all speaking in a way that pulls all these pieces together and sh- shows you that this man born of a virgin there in the stable uh, was the promised Messiah, the Son of God, God himself come to earth, Emmanuel, God with us. So what follows now is the third session of that series, The Life of Christ, and these are the birth narratives. I hope you enjoy it. Listen closely and learn about Jesus. We're going to spend some time today talking about New Testament geography and about the birth narratives, but let me just make a comment about where we've come so far. We spent a little time talking about the historical and cultural context We saw that the Gospels, that are our chief source of information about Jesus Christ, were written from basically four different points of view, um, giving us, each one giving us some unique information, John especially giving us a lot of unique information compared to the other three, uh, each having a theological intent. It's kind of like our own witnessing when we talk about the life of Christ, we're trying to as Paul says, season our words with salt so that we know how to respond to each person and be sensitive and see where they're coming from. And so we gear the things that we have to say to their particular needs and their particular situation or or uh, background or vocabulary or something like that. And God did the same thing when he gave us the Gospels through these different writers. He gave us four different approaches to the same material. And uh, we also realize, and we'll get to more detail about that today, we talk about the heralds of Christ's coming, that, that Jesus was not born into a theological vacuum. And this is part of my frustration as we talk with people, especially coming from an Eastern religion, New Age background, who address Jesus Christ. They act like he just fell from the sky and brought with the, him 20th century understandings about metaphysics. At least they try to place that into his mouth as they read his words. And... Um, that's not the case at all because Jesus has has a history and not just a history of 33 years, 30 some years of his lifetime, but I'm really talking about an entire history that comes before him. And part of the advantage of studying the Old Testament, not only to learn general things about how God works, uh, but but is also to see how God really laid a foundation theologically for the coming of Messiah. And we read in the Old Testament those things that bring us to a point of 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 the the stage being laid so to speak of this dramatic event when god will take on human form 
and actually, I, I think I've said God becomes a man, that technically it's not a proper way to say it. God doesn't become a man. God takes on human form. He remains God, but he adds to him the properties and the nature of humanness. And, uh, and so there's all of this that comes before, and one of the advantages of taking a course like uh, the Bible Fast Forward is you can see some of the theological foundations, and you realize that when Jesus lands, as it were, from a historic perspective, he lands right in the middle of a long, or right at the, at the end of a, of a long series of events of salvation history that God has set into motion to prepare the world, and, and, and uh, I should say to prepare the Jews, and subsequently to prepare the world for this, his most dramatic revelation of himself. Um, so he was not born in a, a, a theological vacuum, but there are some problems with the historic situation that will color everything that happens in Jesus' life. And again, I want to emphasize the fact that we are not, we are not just grabbing the sayings of Jesus and looking at them in isolation. And this always leads to error. What we are doing is we're looking at the man, what he said, the record of those who walked with him and talked with him and lived with him for three and a half years. And we're also looking at the cultural situation as much as we can, putting ourselves back in the, in the sandals, as it were, of those people who lived at the time so we can have a sense of the magnitude and the import of some of the things that were said in a way that we wouldn't if we were just sim simply thinking of it with 20th century perspective. And part of that context is not just the context of the theological elements, the, the revelation that has brought us to this point in history, but also the context of the, of the cultural circumstances that Jesus was in. And one of those was a, a time in the history of the Jews where you have, uh, you, you have, you've had within the last 600 years, and that may seem like a long time to us because we're only 200 years old, but, but the Jews have a very long cultural memory. And some 550, 600 years before the time of Christ, the northern half of uh, the kingdom called Israel, the northern ten tribes were dispersed by the Assyrians. 150 years later, the southern two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, were taken in captivity to Babylon. In other words, dramatic devastation by Gentile armies, essentially, of the entire nation of Israel. The ten northern tribes scattered all around the Mediterranean and were to that day, it, Jesus' time scattered about, and these were the synagogues that Paul and Silas went and preached at in these other, in, in Asia Minor and in, in, in Rome and in Corinth and Greece. And, uh, and then we have the memory also, not only of that scattering, but the Babylonian captivity, which really disrupted things. Seventy years later, the people began to trickle back. During the intertestamental period, from the time of Malachi to the time of John the Baptist, the two prophets, you have 400 years of prophetic silence. During that time, the Jews are under the heel first to the Babylonians, as I mentioned, then the Medo-Persians, then the Greeks, and then finally the Romans, and suffered greatly under the heel of the Romans and the Greeks. And as a result, when they're thinking of Messiah that's promised in the Old Testament, there are promises of both spiritual sustenance coming from the Messiah, and most graphically we see this in Isaiah 53. And there is also promise of political deliverance, and we see this in, uh, in uh, say, Psalm 2 is a good example. And we see the two coming together very dramatically in the New Covenant, where there's a promise of the giving of the Holy Spirit, 
and a complete forgiveness of sins and a new heart that is placed in man. But at the same time, there is this promise of regeneration in Ezekiel's dry bones prophecy where God breathes on the bones in the grave and they come alive like an army. And there is revival in the, the stick of Ephraim and the stick of Joseph are rejoined, emblematic of the, all of the tribes of Israel being brought together and reunited there in the nation. And the people are thinking of this. And both of those things are in there. But having this history of being under the heel of Gentile domination, what is, in the, what is in the mind of the average Jew? What is in their mind is political deliverance, not the spiritual aspects of the kingdom. They are both involved, but you must understand this principal interest, and it's understandable. I'm not faulting them for this. But it's a critical part of the, of the cultural milieu, the cultural environment into which Jesus is placed. And it raises problems that he will have to deal with through his entire three years of ministry. The other thing that we notice that's very, very important from these accounts is not only the consistent conflict with prevailing leadership, principally uh, 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 for theological reasons because of this notion of Messiah, uh, and for, for, how could I say this? I don't want to say social reasons because that's, I would just say for personal reasons. There was a tremendous amount of ego conflict that was involved here. And Paul himself had to face this problem when he went to spread the gospel because they didn't care about Paul when he preached the gospel to the Jews. They just, some believed, the rest of them shined him on. Paul went to the Gentiles and had a huge revival and the Jews got jealous and so they incited a riot, the Jewish leadership. And so this is a problem that we see not only in, in, in Jesus' life but in Paul's as well. So there's that personal conflict of men who wield tremendous political power under the shadow, of course, of the Roman emperor and uh, locally under Pontius Pilate and King Herod and the others, but, but still having a tremendous amount of freedom to, ex to exercise political power over the people in that country. And the, especially the Sadducees, who are, who are tied to the temple worship system, who are politically connected who are anti-supernaturalists, they don't believe in heaven, they don't believe in the afterlife or the resurrection, they don't believe in angels, Matter of fact, if you recall in the book of Acts, Paul actually creates a big disturbance about this because he had been arrested at one point. This is just prior to the time when he's taken to Rome. And he discerns that amongst the group of the leadership are both Sadducees and Pharisees, who are both part of the leadership. They occupy a little different roles, and they have very divergent theology. Both of them are against him at this particular point. The, the Pharisees, out of zealousness for the law, and Sadducees, because they're concerned about, their, about the political problems that, that all of this Christianity is creating for them, and they don't want to lose their sustenance, essentially, which they ended up doing when the, the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D., but Paul discerns the distinction. And so he raised, he speaks at the top of his voice and he says, I am at trial here for the resurrection of the dead. Of course, which was the precise thing that he was in trial of, in a sense, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and was also a very, very touchy point of conflict between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And in the process, instead of everybody yelling at Paul, they started arguing amongst themselves. Hey, this guy's not so bad. Pharisees said the Sadducees had a different opinion. And in the melee that followed, Paul almost got himself torn to pieces. So, so there, are, there, are, there are theological issues 
with the Jews, but there is also a very, very critical political issue. And we look at politics now, and we look at the elections that are upon us today locally and what happened last November, and we think about the critical issues of ethics that are involved, of values, of religious truth that are involved in that, and we see much of that trampled underneath expedient politics, and it's frustrating for people of principle for that, for that reason. But at the same time, you realize 2,000 years ago, early church, Jesus himself had to deal with the same thing. So this is no different than what Jesus had to face. Let's talk for just a moment about geography, because geography does enter into your understanding of some of the accounts. For example, in John chapter 4, it starts out with, with um, a comment that John makes about Jesus, who had to go through or must needs go through Samaria to get to Galilee curious kind of phrase. We hear about going up to Jerusalem and uh, people in the north going up to Jerusalem, which is in the south, and we have a hard time making sense out of that. If we understand a little bit of the geography of the land, and I've never been there, I'd love to go there and really see it firsthand, as it were, uh, it helps us to understand and unravel some of these incidents and some of these situations. And so let me draw you a very simple map of Palestine and talk about some of the main geological features. Obviously, this is the Mediterranean Sea, and this here is Palestine here in the eastern uh, and a little bit of the southern part of that, that, that shore, the uh, the eastern shore of the Mediterranean, cutting a little bit south. Of course, you know, uh, the Nile is down in here. This is called the Negev, or the Southland. The uh, Mount Sinai is down in this area. This is all desert, okay? Here, of course, is the Dead Sea. This here is Galilee. This is the Jordan River, okay? Now, Palestine was, at this particular time, it's been divided up at different times in different ways, but at this particular time, basically had four different areas, uh, roughly north to south divided into three areas to the west of the Jordan River. On the north was Galilee, in the south was Judea, and in the middle was Samaria. To the east is Perea, east of the Jordan, principally Gentile lands. Now, there's something important about the, 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 lay, the layout here. Judea is, is, I mean, in Judea is the capital of uh, Jerusalem. There is, a, there is a mountainous area, a spine kind of about 15 to 30 miles west, or rather east of the, uh, of the, the Mediterranean. You have a maritime plain down in here. Um, you have a very rugged area around the, the Dead Sea. You have a, a, the Jordan River Valley. The Jordan wasn't so much habitable as it provided a, a barrier from the Gentiles, uh, which inhabited this region over here principally. You have up here in the far north uh, uh, and a little bit east of uh, Galilee, you have Decapolis, which, does anybody know what Decapolis means? Ten cities. ten cities. These are principally de ten um, uh, Gentile cities. You have Tyre and Sidon area over here, and you see the Syrophoenician woman uh, that Jesus deals with that's up in that area, more Gentile areas. Um, Judea was the was the, the place where, where Jerusalem was located. Um, it is... Um, uh, 
it, it consists of of uh, the Judeans were were very very uh, nationalistic. It's the site of the temple, the center of spiritual life in Palestine. Uh, up in the north, you have the Galileans. These were also intensely nationalistic, but the difference between between the Judeans and Galileans was great. The, the Judeans were the uh, the cosmopolitans. The Galileans were the Hicks. As a matter of fact, Nathaniel makes a comment early in the Gospel of John when he's invited to listen to this Galilean named Jesus, and he he makes this comment, well, can anything good come from Galilee? It's kind of like, like Burbank? Are you kidding? <laughs> One of those kind of things. And so they looked down upon the Galileans. Uh, Jesus did the bulk of his great miracles in this area around the Sea of Galilee, his home was in Nazareth, which was up in this area somewhere. Don't It's kind of in here. I'm just putting marks on the uh, board because I don't know exactly where. But in this general area is Nazareth. You also have Cana where Jesus had his first miracle, uh, his teaching and preaching uh, much around the Sea of Galilee. Down here you have Gadira where the uh, Gadarene demoniac we read about in Mark 5 uh, was healed, uh, delivered from his... Um, oppression by the by the legion of demons there were actually two men there one gospel records only one the other gospel <laughs> records two incidentally this would be a good time for me to make a comment about alleged contradictions i want to make a point about contradictions and people who are who are hostile to christianity and to the gospel may make a big deal about contradictions uh, i want you to look at this word contradiction i'm breaking it down into its two its uh, prefix and its and its uh and its root word. What does the word diction relate to? Words or speech, okay? What does contra mean? Against or opposite. Contradict means to say the opposite. That's what a contradiction is, something that says the opposite. If you said, I went down to Lucky's on Saturday, April 22nd, April 18th, 16th, 17th, well, I don't know what Saturday was. And then, and then you said to somebody else, I didn't go to Lucky's. That would be a contradiction. If you said, at one point, I went to Lucky's on Saturday, and then at another point, you say, I went to Nordstrom's on Saturday, is that a contradiction? It's not. You could have gone to both. And one person you tell one thing, another person you tell another thing. A lot of apparent contradictions are really different aspects of the account that are highlighted by one writer that is not highlighted by another writer. It's just that simple. And there is a practice in historical assessment and analysis. Did I speak about this already? About, um, the practice is that they give the benefit of the doubt to the writer. And Aristotle makes the same comment. Actually, the dictum comes from Aristotle. If, if a person is writing, you give him the benefit of the doubt that he's not contradicting himself unless you have good reason to believe that he is. The unfortunate things is people who, who, are, who are inclined to criticize the Bible go in looking for variations, and then their conclusion is every time they find something a little different that it's a contradiction. Contradiction is saying the opposite. And the standard procedure in historical research is if you find an apparent contradiction, you assume that the writer is not contradicting himself or that two people viewed the same event, really saw the same things. You try to find a way to explain them and make them consonant. You don't call them both liars. 
And actually, it's a good principle just in human relations. I mean, you got you folks who have kids, you probably heard two different stories from your kids. And when you when you got down to talking to them after the big fight, you realize that they both were really saying true things, but maybe from a different angles, and there was a way to make them consonant with each other. And so the process in, of, of uh, resolving a contradiction is simply to try to find a way that it fits. And if it does fit, it's reasonable and fair to take it in the way that, that makes it consonant instead of looking for a problem. That's the way history is done. Now, for example, the case with the Gadarene demoniacs, we see in, in Mark 5, we see one account. I don't know where the parallel account is, but the point is, is one says one account, one, and the other one says two. Now, the, the first doesn't say one and only one, and the two doesn't say two and only two. So it's not a contradiction. What you have is you have one writer focusing in on the conversation Jesus had with one of the person, and the other writer just reports all both of them. The fact is, you came in here tonight, and before you leave, you might have a conversation with two or three different people. If you talk to friends later, you say, I talked to such and so. And then they come back to you, and you say, you lied to me. You talked to some other person. Well, the fact is, you talk to them both, so there's no conflict there. And so it's inappropriate or unfair for a person to call you a liar, simply because you didn't include the whole story in your first account to that person. What uh, the gospel writers do is they pick and choose the circumstances and the incidents to focus on and emphasize those things that they think are theologically significant. Some people think that uh, Cain getting married is a contradiction. Where did Cain get his wife? You know, I used to think this was a great assault against Christianity before I knew the Lord. And now I look at it, and, and and it seems so ludicrous to me. It's laughable. Where did Cain get his wife? He married his sister. Well, it doesn't say he had sisters. Well, it doesn't say he didn't. Obviously, they had lots of kids. That it does say. And around that time, you know, you didn't have too many other choices <laughs> in any event. And that's what happened. It's not a contradiction. It's just a problem that can be solved if you just look a little closer to the text. Okay, just a point about so-called contradictions. Uh, now, Samaria is a is an interesting area because in Samaria is this little town called Sychar. We read about Sychar in um, John chapter 4 because Jesus encounters the woman at the well. Now in Samaria uh, was a group of people that were basically half-breeds. These were Gentile Jewish half-breeds that had populated the area during the Babylonian captivity and lived in this particular area between Galilee and Judea during the time of Christ. There was a tremendous amount of animosity between the, Jew the Jews and the Samaritans. And as a matter of fact, when Jesus goes through Samaria, he talks with this woman at the well. The disciples are off getting some food. And this is an amazing thing because, because the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, John points out. And also this is a woman who's drawing water. And, and, and men don't talk to women principally, especially a rabbi. As a matter of fact, if any of you have had dealings with rabbis who are, who are observant rabbis, um, in, in, even in our own culture, they will not touch a woman. You cannot, and, and matter of fact, I've been at some functions where there was rabbis and I met the wife and I went to reach out and shake hands with the wife and she wouldn't even shake hands with me because she was the rabbi's wife. And of course, a rabbi will never, an observant rabbi will never ever touch a woman even socially, except for his own wife. And so back then, rabbis didn't, have, same thing, rabbis didn't have dealings with women either. And not only that, here was a woman that was drawing in the middle of the day. Now, one thing we know about the middle of the day in uh, Palestine is it's awful hot. 
And if you have to draw water from the well, you don't go out in the middle of the day and draw. You go in the morning and the evening when it's cool. Well, the problem with the morning and evening is everybody else is out there. So it's unusual that this woman is drawing in the middle of the day, and it seems to indicate, and we get more details as Jesus converses with her, that here is a woman who of questionable morals, and so she can't go in the morning and the evening because all the women in the village had henpeck her to death, so she comes out in the heat of the day to get water and has this encounter with Jesus. But there are a lot of biased things that Jesus is kind of overcoming there, principally, though, is the bias of the Jews against Samaritans. And what would happen is the Jews, in wanting to go to Galilee, would go to the border of Samaria, go east along the border, cross over the Jordan, travel up the Jordan River, come into Galilee just south of the Sea of Galilee, and cross over into Galilee. So they will not soil their feet with Samaritan dirt, essentially. This is how strong the animosity was. And you can think, if you recall in the book of Acts, then, when there is a, when the gospel goes from Jerusalem, Philip and some others uh, go down to Samaria, I should say up to Samaria, down from Jerusalem, because Jerusalem's in the mountains. So they go down into Samaria and they, they begin to spread the gospel and Samaritans begin to trust in the Lord. And this is why the disciples had to go down there and, in a sense, officially approve of this spreading of the gospel to these who were social outcasts from the, from the Jewish rank and file. Because if they didn't, you would have a, a Samaritan church and you would have a Jewish church of Christians, and never the twain shall meet. And so that just underscores a little bit more this hostility that was going on there, and it also highlights the significance of Jesus' trip to Samaria, as the text says, he, he must needs go through Samaria. Now, he didn't have to go through Samaria, he could have walked around like everybody else, but it was a little bit shorter. And Jesus was willing to bring the gospel to anybody, regardless of their social standing and the problems uh, with their, their social standing. Okay, Jesus' ministry actually took him in a, in, all through this area, but there were times in his ministry where he spent more time in Judea, of course, in Jerusalem during Passion Week, which incidentally takes up 33% of the Gospels. The bulk of the Gospel material deals with only about 11 days of Jesus' life. Oh yeah, Bethlehem is down in Judea. Uh, also, Bethany, which is just about a mile out of Jerusalem itself. This is where Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Uh, that's in that area. Uh, John was baptizing by the Jordan somewhere in this area. You have uh, Caesarea over here on the coast, and uh, uh, there are some incidents in the book of Acts we see in Caesarea too. Okay, I think I've covered all of the uh, principal areas of geography. Again, it would be fascinating to uh, to visit this country and um, everything's so small, you know it's only thirty miles or so from Jerusalem to the ocean. Uh, the the, the country is only like ninety miles long, the whole thing. So it's very very small. And it's a good thing too because, you know, you got to do it. back then they didn't have cars. You had to do a lot of walking. Um, you know, it, it's made me wonder quite a bit just about our own pace of society. And a couple of years ago, I did more thinking about this, but I, I am constantly aware of this issue of the pace of society and stuff. And how nice it must have been, in, in a way, to walk everywhere. Because since it takes so long to get places, you don't have the same expectations on your productivity. And can, can you imagine, can you imagine how, how, uh, how much just pleasant conversation you could have with people. Now, now when we take a walk, it's like an event. Yeah, man, I, 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 took, a, I, I took a walk a couple months ago, and, 
gee, I, I, I saw some birds. I mean, it's like there were some some trees and a few plants. It was like amazing, you know, like wildlife, you know, birds, wildlife. And uh, I lived in Thailand about 11 years ago, and it, and I lived out in the country, and, and it just occurred to me once, I was working in a refugee camp and living in a small village, about 3,000 people, and, I, and, and it, about, I was there for about a month and a half or two months, and I was driving, actually riding a motorcycle to the refugee camp one morning, and, you know, I'm just going through the countryside, it's all rice paddies and kids riding uh, water buffalo and, uh, you know, dead cobras in the road and that kind of stuff, and I, and I you know, squash with the tails flopping, I, I kind of like that stuff, and, <laughs> and, and, and it suddenly occurred to me, I live in the country, and it was really neat, it was really, really neat, and, it, and, and sometimes you kind of, there's a wistfulness when you think about this, where the conversations you could have with people are just the opportunity to think, to think, just to walk and think. Um, sometimes I do my best praying in the car and, and my best thinking in the car because, you know, I can kind of do two things at once, kind of the way I'm made. And, you know, when I'm brushing my teeth, I'm, I'm washing the mirror at the same time. Maybe I should brush my teeth a little slower. That might make it a little easier. But uh, And so here is something where you're walking and you're going somewhere, so you have a feeling of accomplishing something, but at the same time, you could spend a long time just in reflection. And then you wonder, you read the book of Proverbs, and you see how many things the writer of Proverbs discerned regarding wisdom from the world around him. Consider the ant, O sluggard. You know, well, how could Solomon say that? Because he had considered the ant. He had the time to do it. He was walking, thinking. Maybe we should do more of that. Okay, I, was, I started out talking about the um, theological circumstances in which Jesus found himself. And I want to take a few moments just talking about those circumstances in a little bit more detail. Because it, it, it is very, very profound. And if, if you've taken the Bible fast forward, then you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't taken it, uh, we'll be having it next year, and this is a good commercial. You ought to take it. Because it really is quite, how could I say it? it? The course is 10 weeks long. It takes us seven weeks to get to Jesus. But by the time we get to Jesus, people characteristically are, are really wired because of all that they've learned before. They see the cohesiveness, not only of the Bible, but the unity and cohesiveness of God's plan. And they see the foundation that has been laid before and all of that. And it all comes clear to them in a way that it never did before. And let me just mention a few of the things that lay that theological foundation, and you will see these things referenced from the mouths of all of these people who, who will end up heralding the birth of Jesus and the coming of Jesus, the advent of Messiah. The human people on the scene at the time, Zechariah and uh, Simeon and uh, Mary herself, the comments that are made, the angels. Even the demons, the things that they say, really fit into this broader plan. And the first, the first herald, if you will, of, of the advent of the Messiah uh, are, are a series of covenants that God makes with Israel. There were a number of covenants that God made that we can trace in the Old Testament. I'm just going to mention four, the principal four. The first one was the Abrahamic covenant. We read about it in chapter 12 of Genesis, verses 1 through 3. And God promises to do some things for Abraham if Abraham would simply follow him. 
If Abraham follows him, then God will set into motion a series of events and promises that he will see to it are ultimately fulfilled. And the goal of the ulti- the goal of this promise is not merely to bless Abraham and strengthen him and make a great nation, which is the nation of Israel, but to take that nation, to use that nation as a tool to accomplish something profound and powerful in the world. Indeed, as we find out, the salvation of the world. So God has called this man Abraham and places upon his shoulders, in, to some measure, the responsibility, but to, to a greater degree, the promise of God fulfilling a covenant or a contract that would ultimately bring salvation to the Gentiles. Now, the wording of that text is that God would bring a blessing to the Goyim, or to all the nations, as it says in your translation. The Goyim are all those that are not Jews. The whole world. And of course, the blessing is for Israel as well. And so God will work through Abraham in some, some way. And Abraham doesn't have a lot of detail on that. He knows that he will get a, he will, he will, he will get a, a nation will spring from his loins. He will have children that number like the stars of the sky and the sands of the sea. He knows that, uh, that God will protect him. God will give him a, 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 a culture. In a sense, he will build a community, and we see this later as part of the Mosaic Covenant, which I'll get to in just a few moments. But the principal thing is, is that God's going to be a, a use Abraham and his heirs and his offspring, those that spring from his own loins, as God puts it in Genesis chapter 15, as a blessing to the rest of the world. Now, it's very important that you kind of have this in your mind, because much is made of the blessing of Abraham. Many references are made to that, demonstrating that the Jews understood, even even 2,000 years after the fact, that God was still in the process of doing something through the nation of Israel. Well, this is one reason I respect a guy like Dennis Prager, because Dennis Prager understands that uh, the Jews have a commission by God to reflect something true about God to the rest of the world. Now, what that something true is, the particular message, I think he's he's got wrong or he's only got partially right. But the point is, he understands that Israel has a commission, and he's given his life to fulfill that commission in part. And uh, as time goes on, God gives more information. This is called progressive revelation. God gives some information at one point of time, then he adds to it at another point of time. Later on, he adds more to it. And so each person in the Bible, each age or era in the Bible, we get more and more detail about what it is that God's trying to accomplish. The next piece of information, and actually I should probably change this around in your notes, the next piece of information is the Mosaic Covenant, time-wise. This is a, uh, this is a, a, a contract God makes with the nation of Israel, which is conditional. It provides for structure for the nation of Israel, for uh, civic order and civic government, laws to be passed, ways of satisfying grievances. There are dietary laws, things that God gives Israel to help them to be more healthy, but also to separate them culturally from the rest of the heathen people around them so they will not become eclectic. Uh, taking a little bit of, uh, I should say, eclectic, taking a little bit from their religions and their own religion, like a spiritual smorgasbord, are not syncretistic, which is meshing the two religions. And so God puts a cultural wall around them to separate them out, as it were, culturally. So they're weird. It's like they make, God takes ordinary American citizens and he, he makes them into Amish people. 
And I don't mean that as a put down to Amish. I, I just use that as a dramatic kind of illustration. That's really what it is. There's no way of mixing the cultures because the cultural strictures are so strong. And that's what God did with Israel. One of the things he also did in the Mosaic Covenant is he gives his moral law. And he also makes provision for a sacrifice that will cover sins. And in many of these cases, what you see is what are called biblical types. And types are pictures of things in Israel's history, like Joseph, for example, or in Israel's uh, activity, uh, religious activity, like uh, like the oil in the lamp, that has that has a further meaning down the line. Like Joseph is a type of 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 a deliverer who will be rejected by his own people, and in the process of the rejection, become the deliverer of the people. And in fact, the the deliverance itself almost depends on the rejection, and the oil in the lamp that we see in the in the um, in the temple is is emblematic of the Holy Spirit, and the water in the washings of emblematic of the Spirit. And Jesus can say then, uh, near his Passion Week, he can stand up in the temple and he can say, from your innermost beings will flow rivers of living water. Picking up on that imagery from the Old Testament. So there are types, and one of the types in the Mosaic uh, contract, the agreement of God between God and uh, and uh, and the people is that a, an innocent lamb without blemish will be slaughtered, so that the sins of the people can be identified with it, and and the people will be forgiven and their sins can be covered, and the mercy seat can be sprinkled with the blood. And so God, instead of seeing the rebellion of Israel, um, in the in the the things in the Ark of the Covenant, this box that uh, that they carried with them, with the cherubim and the sh on its side, and the Shekinah glory, that the visible presence of God, this theophany of God, the Shekinah glory hanging in between. Instead of looking down in the box and seeing the rod of of Aaron that budded, which evidences Israel's rebellion against God's leadership, the broken uh, uh, mosaic, the tablets of the law, which is emblematic of man's breaking of God's law, the, the, the jar of the manna, which is emblematic of God re, of men rejecting God's provisions. All of these things happen. Instead of God seeing man's rebellion, he sees the blood. And this is a type of a time when, when a perfect sacrifice will come and man will suffer, um, a man will suffer and die and shed his blood to cover the sins of mankind for all times. The writer of the book of Hebrews develops this thought in a very profound and thorough fashion. Matter of fact, one of my favorite chapters in all the scriptures is Hebrews chapter 10 because of the, the power there and the significance of the work of Christ that's outlined there in that chapter. The fact that now since we have one offering for all times, that, that, that we have been sanctified already by the blood of Christ, we can therefore, since we have a great high priest who stands before the throne of God, we can now come without fear, without trembling, in full assurance of faith before that very throne and make requests of the Father. We also have, following that, the Davidic covenant, in which a direct descendant of David is promised to David to sit on the throne uh, of David forever, reign forever. We see that in 1 Samuel chapter 7. And this is why much is made of the phrase son of David, because there was this remembrance of this covenant, this promise that God would make, that the Messiah would come and he would be a son of David that would sit and reign with a rod of iron and, uh, and, and would rule justly. And finally, justice and liberty would, would, uh, would be the rule of the day in Palestine, in Judea. The crowning covenant, the new covenant we read about in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36, was the, in my opinion, was the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham 
where God promises that he would use the Jews to be a blessing to all the Gentiles. Abraham didn't have a lot of detail of that, although Jesus did say he saw my day and rejoiced in it. So he knew maybe more than we think he knew. Still, the details are given us there in the Abraham in the, uh, the New Covenant, which replaces the Mosaic Covenant, the covenant which the Jews broke, condemning them in God's eyes, bringing on all kinds of tragedy. God says, I will give you a new covenant. And uh, in this new covenant has some separate provisions. First was the complete forgiveness of sin, uh, the, the uh, giving of a new heart, the laws being written on their heart, the giving of the Holy Spirit, so people would follow out a newness of the Spirit, not the oldness of the law, and also a, uh, a, re a, a rebirth of the nation of Israel. And so we have this new covenant. So these are things theologically that are kind of necessary preconditions for the Messiah. In other words, the Messiah is going to be the fulfillment of these kinds of things, and so whoever would claim to be Messiah would have to kind of follow in that tradition. He would have to bring the promise of Abraham, which is a blessing to the Gentiles. He would have to fulfill the Mosaic Covenant, not only typologically as being a sacrificial lamb, but also morally in fulfilling the requirements of the Mosaic Covenant. He would have to fulfill the promise to, to David. To see, he would be a son of David. He would be a direct descendant of David. And we read in, in Matthew chapter 1 and also Luke chapter 4, I believe, we see two separate genealogies. One genealogy, the Matthew genealogy, traces Jesus' heritage through his, really his, uh, I guess you could call it his stepfather, uh, Joseph, who wasn't his, he wasn't his biological father. And, and we, and we see direct lineage on the royal line of David. So he inherits through his father, Joseph, the, the, uh, the heir to the throne through, through direct lineage that way. But also the Luke passage traces Joseph's parenthood, not through his human father, but his physical father, but through his father-in-law, Mary's father. And, uh, and also charts it up so we see a direct blood link through a different son, Nathan, not Solomon, which is the royal bloodline. Um, so Jesus is related on both bloodlines to David. And uh, not only must he fulfill those things, but he also must provide for the provisions of the new covenant, the fulfilling of the uh, promise of, of the new birth, the giving of the Holy Spirit, the, um, the forgiveness of sins, all of those things. Now, what I want, what I need to stop and say to you at this point is having laid out a little foundation of those covenants, and that's just bare bones stuff, but it'll give you a little bit of a taste for kind of the, th the theological activity that's going on here that Jesus finds himself in the midst of, so to speak, which he is an integral part of. But this is easy to outline 2,000 years after the fact. Uh, I am not suggesting that those in the first century we're sitting there thinking, God, gee, it's just about the time of the, uh, you know, the 70 weeks prophecy be fulfilled. We've got all the information about, let's see, we've got the Abrahamic covenant, we've got the Davidic covenant, we've got the Mosaic covenant, we've got the New Covenant. Okay, we've got all these. Here's my checklist. They didn't have that. Now, they did have some understanding of this, clearly. But since I mentioned earlier the progressive revelation, we have more information now because of the epistles, etc., and the, all that we learned in the life of Christ, much more than they had then. But many of these places, things were in place and were understood. Matter of fact, there's a very interesting conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus. And Jesus, in John chapter 3, talks to this spiritual leader who he calls the teacher of Israel. Not much is known of Nicodemus now in secular literature, 
not like Gamaliel, who trained Paul, who was one of the greatest rabbis of all time. Jesus identifies him as the teacher of Israel. We later learn that he becomes a follower of Jesus Christ, and it may be that he lost his place in history precisely because of that. But um, Jesus makes this comment when talking about spiritual rebirth, which has to do with the giving of the Holy Spirit. Very likely a reference when he talks about born of water, that could be physical birth, but it could also be a reference to this, the, uh, the, the giving of the Holy Spirit that we see um, uh, in Jeremiah chapter 31. And Jesus says, because Nicodemus is kind of in the dark about this, and Jesus is talking about being born of the Spirit and all of this, and he says, well, how can I be born when I'm old and I can't get into my mother's womb again? What is this you're talking about? And Jesus actually, actually, uh, uh, you know, chastises him a little bit, and he says, you know, you are the teacher of Israel, and you don't understand these things? And it seems like Jesus is expecting them to understand some fundamental things, which apparently have, many of them have missed. You know, I, I always get frustrated. We just had Easter a couple weeks ago, and, and I don't know if some of you watched some of the Easter Jesus movies. They're, they're interesting to watch. If you're much of a biblicist, they drive you nuts. Because you find out all the problems in them. You see, like, oh, that could never have happened. That's just not, you know, it just drives you crazy. But in Jesus of Nazareth, which I thought was the best portrayal of any of them that I've seen, you have Joseph of Arimathea, I believe, the character, at least in the scripting, looking at Jesus on the cross. And as he sees Jesus on the cross, begins to recite Isaiah 53 in the sense that all of this learning and his training and all of this stuff, all of a sudden he realizes it's coming to pass right before his eyes. And he says, oh my God, and, and this is it. That's what that passage is about. And of course, as he recites it, you can see it all happening before your eyes. You see, here were some people who understood about the, the spiritual role of Messiah and the more significant issues, not the political issue, not the increased economic values, not the better jobs, not better roads, not, not the improved standard of living, but the deep spiritual need that the people faced. Not the economic issues, but the issues of values and true spirituality. My eyes have seen your salvation, Simeon says, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. A light of revelation to the Gentiles, back to Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, and the glory of your people Israel. He identifies Jesus as the Messiah and even... Uh, uh, even refers to the, the agony and the passion, not only of Messiah, but that Mary herself would have to go through. As he says, a sword will peace, pierce even your own soul. Anna, the old woman who's fasting and praying continually in the temple, says, continues to speak of him to all those who are looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. The Magi are looking for him who has been born king of the Jews. We saw a star in the east and we have come to worship him. And the significance of this can't, can't be missed. And Jesus was the God of all creation. The, the, the poetic couplet says, he was crucified on a cross of wood, but he made the hill upon which it stood. Jesus, the humble servant born in a manger among lowly people, Gentiles, people like Simeon and Anna representing the finer sides of Israel, Israel's piety, 
Isn't it, isn't it dramatic, though, when you think about it? The, the Magi, heathen Gentiles, dogs in the eyes of the Jews, travel over land and sea to find this man, this baby, that they might worship him. Proskuneo. They fall down and worship him. And they go to the, to the reigning king of Israel, who should know better, who even talks to his scribes and says, where is this child to be born? And they say, Bethlehem. These Gentiles had more spiritual insight, and by the way, you'll see this frequently in the Gospels, than the Jews who should have known better. They fall down and worship Jesus. In the meantime, actually a couple of years later, um, Herod, realizing he's been tricked, seeks to have Jesus put to death and takes the life of dozens of little children in the process. The message is clear through all that is said, even from the Magi's, the angels, Zacharias, Mary, Simeon, Anna, and even later, the, the demons themselves are forced to shriek out the truth. Jesus is the promised Messiah of Israel, the Savior of the world. I always have a couple of deep moments every Christmas, not because the holiday itself has religious significance to me. It's a struggle for me. It doesn't really. It has social, cultural significance. And I mentioned on the show a couple of weeks ago that I am not so much a respecter of days when it comes down to religious holidays. I mean, Easter, Christmas, Good Friday. Oh, it's Good Friday? God, you're right. They're kind of all the same to me in terms of the emotional impact on me, but I can't get through Christmas without being touched by the Christmas carols. And I think that it's interesting that it's the one time in the year that God arranges for people all over the world, heathen and Christian alike, to sing his praises. And when you realize that, you look a little closely at some of the words of the Christmas carols. They're some of the most profound words of testimony that were ever written outside of the text, outside of the scripture. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Fall on your knees. Oh, hear the angels' voices. Oh, night divine. Oh, holy night, when Christ was born. 